How can you achieve and maintain business growth? Harvard Business School Executive Education is now accepting applications for a new program, Driving Profitable Growth. Taking place in Boston from October 25th through the 28th, this program focuses on business expansion and organizational growth strategies that can lead your company into the future. Learn more about this three-day program for senior leaders by visiting hbs.me growth. That's hbs.me growth. Hi, it's David Locke, host of Locked on NBA, founder of the Locked on Podcast Network. It is time for part one of our four-part season preview series. This is where the Locked on Podcast Network just kicks butt. We have a local expert on every single team giving you the insight you can't get anywhere else from the local expert who knows the team and hosts the Locked On Show. So we're going to hit the Eastern Conference first today with Atlanta, Boston, Brooklyn, Charlotte, Chicago, Cleveland, and Detroit. Part two will be later this week. Western Conference will hit part two of the East early next week and then part two of the West uh, coming for you next week as well. So the season preview series, each of these hosts of the great Locked On podcast will break down where their team stands, rookies that will jump out at you, things to keep an eye on, what a successor failures and then Josh Lloyd of Locked On Fantasy Basketball will jump in and give you the quick fantasy take on that team as well so you are covered with a season preview plus a fantasy take and it all hits right now on Locked On NBA you are locked on the NBA part of the Locked On Podcast Network The Season Preview Eastern Conference Edition number one brought to you by our title sponsor, SeatGeek. SeatGeek doing a fabulous job revolutionizing ticket buying and making it easier for you. You've not downloaded the SeatGeek app yet? You have to get the SeatGeek app. Why? Because it makes ticket buying easy. Remember the old days? You had your guy, your bookie, not your bookie, your ticket guy, your broker. Sorry, broker, not bookie. You had your guy. You had to go to him. You had to trust that he had the right deals for you. You had to trust that those were the right numbers. You weren't really sure. You checked three other places. It took forever. Over. SeatGeek's going to make it easy for you. All you do is go to your iTunes, your Google Play Store, download the SeatGeek app. Right there on it has all of the tickets from all around the area to the event you want to go to. And then the best part of SeatGeek is the ticket score. It checks out the ticket score for you and gives you which tickets in the arena or at the venue are the best prices for you available. You buy them right there, and it's secure to your phone. Plus, with the promo code LOCKED, you get $20 back on your first purchase. That's right, $20 back with the promo code LOCKED. So download the SeatGeek app and use it. This is why I use SeatGeek now because it's so much easier. I don't have to go to that ticket broker. I don't have to wonder. I know I'm getting the best deal. I know it's secure on my phone, and I know the ticket score. SeatGeek has changed the game, and you can be a part of it. Let's get it started with the promo code LOCKED, by the way. Let's start with alphabetical. We'll go Atlanta. Boston, Brooklyn, Charlotte, Chicago, Cleveland, and Detroit today on our Eastern Conference previews. Atlanta had a raucous offseason, turning the page from the Dwight Howard era, dumping him over to Charlotte, and they are in a little bit of a rebuild with Paul Millsap, or a lot of a rebuild with Paul Millsap going to Denver, and Brad Rowland is the host of Locked On Hawks. He gives us the breakdown. 
Hello, friends. This is Brad Roll of the Lots on Hawks podcast, and uh, it'll be a very interesting season for the Atlanta Hawks, sort of a transition year and a first year of what could be a lengthy rebuild in Atlanta. For the longest time now, the Hawks have been in the playoffs for 10 consecutive seasons, the second longest playoff streak in the entire NBA, trailing only, of course, San Antonio Spurs, but this is going to be a team this year that's looking forward and not backward, and a lot of transition taking place. Paul Millsap is no longer on the roster as he is now in Denver. Uh, the Hawks not even make him an offer. That kind of says everything you need to know about what they wanted to do this season in terms of a transition into a rebuild. Uh, also, Dwight Howard is no longer around. They've made a lot of their role players from the, from previous seasons. Tabo Cephalosha is gone. Of course, they, they traded Kyle Korver midseason last year. It's going to be a very, very different-looking Hawks team aside from the head coach, which even that has changed. Uh, Mike Budenholzer is still the head coach, but he was the personnel head as of last year. That that, that title has been removed from him. He's just the coach now, which is also sort of adding a, a, little, a little bit of intrigue to the process because it's not every day that you see a head coach go from uh, having full control, staying in the organization, and then uh, actually ceding that control to someone else and Travis Schlenk, the former Golden State Warriors executive. So a lot of transition taking place for the Hawks. That's sort of the headliner as we go into training camp is just kind of see how the rotation shake out for Atlanta this season. You know, A lot of firmly entrenched guys are gone. Uh, they do return some of their uh, rotation players from last year. You know, Dennis Schroeder is the incumbent point guard and probably going to be the best player, the most prolific player for sure on this team this season. They do bring back players like Kent Bazemore um, from last year. You know, he is overpaid, but uh, Kent Bazemore is a guy who can certainly be a, a functional wing player in a rotation. They do have guys like Mike Muscala coming back. Um, it's not as if they turn over the entire roster, but there was a ton of turnover. You know, the Dwight Howard era is now over as they sort of sold, sold low on Howard after a uh, up-and-down season a year ago to uh, sort of get off that contract in the locker room presence that he had. Um, you know, it's sort of a youth movement on one hand, and then they also signed a bunch of veterans in order to be some stop gaps. They traded for Marco Bellinelli, of course, in the Howard trade, and but they also signed Ursula Iasova, a, you know, a very solid power forward. They, they brought in Dwight Dedman from the Spurs, some familiarity there from a system perspective, as Mike Budenholzer is a longtime, oh, sorry, was a longtime assistant of Greg Popovich in San Antonio, so a little bit of a cohesion there. So it's sort of a, uh, a, a divide between the youth movement and sort of trying to be respectable this season, at least on the outside looking in. That's sort of the interesting part of training camp is to see how that's going to all look together. It's a very, very different team than it was one year ago. In terms of a best-case scenario for the Hawks, I think, uh, simply put, a best-case scenario would be losing a lot of games this season. Uh, from an organizational standpoint, you, you, it's, that's, not, that's not a lot of fun to uh, see the Hawks uh, lose a lot of games if you were a Hawks fan. But at the same time, I think it's uh, very important that they were to uh, draft high in the 2018 draft with, la- with draft lottery reform taking place uh, right as they hit rebuilding. Uh, 2018 is the only time that they're going to be having this uh, very, very lofty chance at the number one overall pick if they were to uh, sort of go into the tank this year. This team is going to be probably a little bit too good for that, which we'll touch on here in a, in a moment, but at the same time, it's going to be good for the Hawks to uh, pick high in the draft, so you want them to lose as many games as possible while also facilitating growth. If you take um, the losing off the table as a best-case scenario, which I think a lot of Hawks fans are split on, um, I think everyone can agree that the best-case scenario in terms of on the court would be seeing some progression from the young players. Dennis Schroeder is the best player on the team now, but he's still very young, and they have him locked up for a number of years in the future, so Schroeder is uh, sort of a polarizing figure around the NBA, but to see some growth from him would be very encouraging. Also in the form of Torian Prince, who is the uh, the Hawks' 2016 first-round draft pick in the lottery, who they acquired in the Jeff Teague trade. 
Uh, Prince, not exactly a star upside player, but if you see some uh, the ability for him to be a an established starter on a long-term basis, that would be very, very encouraging. And finally, John Collins as well, the, the team's rookie from this year, the rookie first-round draft pick. Some Just some internal growth from the young players is probably the best-case scenario in terms of uh, actually winning and performing well on the floor, even if the overarching thing is that the Hawks want to be as poor as possible in the standings in order to draft very high uh, when we arrive there in June. Uh, in terms of players... Uh, it's going to be interesting to see what the worst case scenario is. I think the worst case scenario again sort of goes back to that rebuilding thing. I think the Hawks winning more than they lose would not be a good thing, as, as weird as that might sound. But aside from that, um, having Schroeder stall out and sort of be the player that they've seen in him be the last couple of years would not be a disaster. And that they, they're only paying him sixteen million dollars a year. It's a very reasonable contract if he's just a low end starter. But at the same time, if he's your best player and he's just and he's just a low end starter, that would not be ideal. Same goes for Prince. And I think if the veterans don't go well, you know, Dwayne Dedman, for instance, had some there were some rumors around Deadman last year in San Antonio that he did not, ne- not necessarily see eye to eye with Greg Popovich. Uh, there, could, there, could, there could be some internal strife there. They, still have, they have a bunch of veterans, and if it, if it didn't go well and they uh, did not facilitate an accurate and uh, positive locker room culture, that would not be ideal for the Hawks this season. In terms of a player that's uh, most likely to be thought of differently at the end of the year, uh, I think I will go, honestly, with that as Schroeder. Um, I, I think that's interesting at in, in a number of levels. I'm not the biggest fan of him, candidly, in terms of when compared to a lot of Hawks fans, but I think I am probably higher on him than the national consensus on Schroeder. If you look around the league, a lot of people sort of are very skeptical of Schroeder. It's a very big year for him, so I think if he were to go out and average you know, 20 and 7, something like that, which I think he absolutely can do, uh, it, it's, it's definitely possible for him to be the same kind of player and just average more points and more assist because of the usage rate he's going to have but uh you know from a, from a perception perspective that would go a long way toward helping him sort of jump up a level in terms of uh being noticed nationally same goes for Deadman. If, if he now that he's a full-time sort of entrenched starter that you you would have to assume that he's going to be in atlanta uh he was very good on a per possession basis last year with the spurs so that he, if he were to go out and you know average 28 minutes a game this year and, and uh sort of at least approximate that kind of production. That'd be very uh, interesting for his long-term future because he's basically on a one-year contract. He's a, he's a second-year player option, but Dwayne Debman is a very intriguing piece of the Hawks uh, in the short term. May uh, sort of price himself out of that coming up up in the future, but that would be not, not the worst thing in the world for the Hawks in terms of the 2017-2018 season. And uh, in terms of uh, a trajectory, I think the most important p- pieces to sort of track are Schroeder and Prince. Uh, those are the two foundational, the foundational pieces that the Hawks currently have. You know, the jury is still out on John Collins, the first-round pick from this year, because we've not seen him on, on an NBA court. But Prince was starting by the end of the playoffs last year as a rookie, which is uh, sort of unfathomable if you are if you are someone who follows Mike Budenholzer's career as the head coach. Uh, to have him entrust a rookie like that in the playoffs in a playoff setting is very encouraging. So I think it's a very important season for both Schroeder and Prince in terms of what they can ultimately be down the line, and that's something to definitely keep an eye on this season. Um, the only rookie that I think will make an impact this year for the team, that's one of the big questions, is, uh, is John Collins. They did uh, pick up Tyler Dorsey in the draft in the second round, but uh, he's more of a pure shooter, sort of offensive spark plug type that I can't imagine is going to be getting on the floor a whole lot this year out of Oregon. Uh, as for Collins, he was a huge part of the Summer League roster, um, was one of the most intriguing guys in the entire NBA when it came to Summer League. He was an, on the All-Summer League team, uh, had some highlight dunks really sort of flash the potential that the Hawks were looking to see from him. His athleticism, his burst are very, very intriguing, and the Hawks are going to, if nothing else, need him to be uh, providing some entertainment this year for the fan base because he's a very fun player to watch. Uh, the jury's out as to how good he'll be. There's some defensive questions there with Collins, but uh, he's a very, very impressive prospect, and it uh, looks like he could be a steal where the Hawks got him at number 19 overall in the draft. Uh, in terms of projection of projecting the season, I think uh, the best-case scenario is uh, sort of in the uh, in the low to mid-30s in terms of the highest win total they could possibly get to. Mike Budenholz 
Budenholzer is a very, very good basketball coach. So if he's able to uh, sort of mold this team in the way that he wants it to, they could be overachieving when compared to their roster. But the roster is not good when compared to the rest of the NBA. I think this is probably a, uh, a low to mid-20s roster that could be uh, molded into something more than that. But uh, I will sort of split the difference there. I would, I would project somewhere in the mid to high 20s in terms of wins. That would not blow me away if they won 30 games. But I, again, as I talked about at the very beginning of this, I would, that would be the greatest result in terms of uh, the future because this team is going to need some high-end talent. And the easiest way to get that is to land in the top three of the draft and what's going to be a very interesting draft in 2018. So I'll be covering that a lot on my show, and that's something that I would encourage people to check out if you're a Hawks fan. But uh, that's sort of the diagnosis of the season this year. It's going to be very interesting, very different for the Atlanta Hawks, but uh, still some must-see TV and probably a more entertaining product, honestly, than it was a year ago. So there, there's the Atlanta Hawks, and uh, please subscribe to the show if you, want to, if you want to check it out. Thanks, Brad. He does a great job with Locked on Hawks. And... He'll be covering the draft really, really well with the lack of wins the Hawks are going to have this year. However, is there a fantasy play inside of it? That's why we bring in Josh Lloyd, our fantasy basketball expert on Lockdown Fantasy Basketball, to give a quick take on the Hawks and the fantasy situation. Hi guys, Josh Lloyd from Locked On Fantasy Basketball here. Just a quick note on the Atlanta Hawks and their fantasy value this season. Bad teams always have lots of fantasy options. I really like Dennis Schroeder this season as a top 50 player. Torian Prince and Dwayne Dedman are guys who are going to go either really late in your drafts or not drafted at all, and I think they both can be top 100 players. John Collins is a sneaky bet for a top 80 player for the final three months of the season, while Kent Bazemore is a guy who should bounce back on a disappointing season from last year and at least provide some late round value. Um, the other guy I want to watch is DeAndre Bembry. Yes, he's dealing with a tricep injury, but if he um, if, if Bazemore falters, Bembry could move in and his numbers could be nice. But the real guys you want to look at are Schroeder, Prince, and Deadman as the top three, and Collins for later on in the season. Thanks, Josh. I'll give you those little tidbits after each team. This is usually where I'm going to jump in and give you my pack rating. Points above average created. It's a metric that shows how a player does compared to the average offensive player in the NBA. In the case of the Hawks, there's there's not a great deal there to talk about with their roster. Dennis Schroeder was a below-average offensive player last year. He'll only increase his role as he was a minus .7, so he's really pretty inefficient offensively, and they're loaded with inefficient offensive players. Ersan Ilyasova is average, and they lost Dwight Howard, who actually was well above average. We'll talk more about this after some of the other teams and what is more relevant. Now, from the Hawks who went from wins to losses to maybe the most exciting offseason of any team in the NBA is the Boston Celtics. And two guys who've been brilliant all offseason are Jay King and John Corrales with one of our most popular programs on the network, Locked On Celtics. Hey guys, John Corrales and Jay King here from the Locked On Celtics podcast. We're the Rain and Jays giving you the Celtics preview. Let's just dive right into it, Jay. The biggest storylines heading into camp, I think they're obvious, right? Yeah, the most obvious out there. Kyrie Irving, how does he get acclimated? How does he shape his game now that he's with the Boston Celtics? How does he fit with Gordon Hayward, the other new star, and then Al Horford, the existing star? And then how does it all mesh with a super young roster that includes Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum, two guys who a lot of people are excited to see emerge as viable NBA players or better or worse or whatever they're going to be. Yeah, that's when you're talking about like two or three storylines, that's it. Storyline number one is Kyrie Irving and how does he fit and how does he work out? Can the Celtics unlock parts of his offense that didn't exist in Cleveland? Storyline number two, Gordon Hayward, does he take a leap forward? He's already a really, really good player, but does he take another step and become a superstar type player? 
And then three, like you said, the the young guys, that bench, can they can they step up? What can Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum and others do? So let's look at the best case scenario for this team. What needs to happen for them to realize a best case scenario, which is what? Best case scenario for them is NBA Finals, right? They they find a way to get past Cleveland and they find a way to get to the NBA Finals. But what do they need to do to get there? I think the storylines we brought up in the first place are kind of what needs to go right. If Kyrie Irving becomes an MVP candidate instead of just a regular all-star, then that will go a long way. If Gordon Hayward can, with a team that plays with a faster pace and with more spacing around him, reach another level of his game, then that would certainly help. And if the young guys can be really good right away, which it's really tough for young guys, especially 19-year-olds like Jason Tatum, 20-year-olds like Jalen Brown, to be relied on like they are. It's very rare that teams have such a young bench with such a talented team. Uh, so Jason Brown, or Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, those guys' <laughs> development will go a long way toward determining whether this team reaches its potential. And we haven't talked about skinny Marcus Smart or, you know, the other guys on, on this team, but but uh, it's mostly it, it's mostly about the top three, man. Like Kyrie, Gordon Hayward, Al Horford. How do those guys fit together? Can they be great together? Yeah, on, on top of those guys all taking steps forward on their own, I think for the Celtics to get a best case scenario is you got to have a, a campaign out of Jason Tatum that gets him Rookie of the Year votes. Not necessarily a Rookie of the Year campaign. But he needs to go out there and have people say, well, you know, he's he's in the he's in the mix, like kind of akin to what Isaiah Thomas did last year for the in the MVP race. Jason Tatum has to get that level of production for the Celtics to be an NBA finalist because they, they, they just that's how thin the bench can end up being. So now let's let work. Let's look at the worst case scenario here for what what's the worst case scenario for the Boston Celtics? I think if if Kyrie comes in and just wants to still be an isolation scorer and can't lift up the guys around him and the defense is no good because there's so many young guys and they lost Avery Bradley and they lost Jay Crowder and let's say Al Horford, God forbid, goes down with an injury and then you look at the rest of the front court, it's like, oh my God, there's no size. There's no no other really talented guys in that front court. They, they could be in for a year that's – that's worse than it was last year when they still had Isaiah Thomas and all those other guys we I just talked about. So it it's going to be an interesting year. One way or another, this team is fascinating. Um, I, I do think there's a wide variety or a wide range of spectrums for how this season goes, and it all depends on the questions of fit and whether they can get more out of some of the guys like like that we talked about, like Kyrie and Brown and Tatum and Smart even. Yeah, uh, you know, injuries are everybody's worst case scenario, but for the Boston Celtics, because they're so thin at the big spot, an injury to Al Horford would be particularly devastating. I, I do think that a worst case scenario is that th- this just doesn't fit. That, like you said, Kyrie just goes off on a madman mission to be an ISO player, which I would be surprised at just considering what he's been saying at the throughout the preseason so far. And at camp, he is stressed. He wants to be a pure point guard. He wants to do things that he hasn't been doing. But- do you agree if if he if it doesn't fit, it's probably on him? Because Al Horford's the easiest so. star to play with. Gordon Hayward can do a little bit of everything. Like he seems like a guy who can fit in most places. Like if it doesn't fit, it's probably on Kyrie. 
that's that's I think Kyrie is in a great position right now because those two other guys are very willing passers. They're not guys that need the ball to produce. They're not ball dominant guys. And Kyrie has a tendency to be. But we've seen Kyrie over the past few years of his career playing in a certain system, especially playing with LeBron James, playing a certain way. So I'll take him at his word that he wants to be something different. But if if that doesn't come to fruition, yeah, it is on him mostly. And it, it's going to be a bad thing if all he wants to do is pound the ball into the ground for, you know, 20 seconds of the shot clock and then heave ho. So that'll be that's a worst case scenario if that's how his entire season progresses, uh, which brings me into the, the player whose trajectory, the career trajectory is most impacted this season, either good or bad. I'm going to say it's Kyrie Irving. Simply because we have viewed him as a certain type of player for this long. And he has an opportunity here at 25 years old to change the narrative. If he can go and do the things that he says he wants to do, become that willing passer, get to the rim a lot more, go to the free throw line a lot more. He has an uh, an opportunity now to change a lot of opinions about his style of play. And if he does do that, then he, I think he will vault himself into that MVP type of category because that opportunity exists in Boston playing alongside Al Horford. I've said this a million times on the lockdown Celtics podcast playing alongside Al Horford unlocks a lot because he plays pick and pop. Unlike a lot of what he's had with Tristan Thompson. I know he's run pick and rolls with Kevin love, but he's run a lot more with Tristan Thompson and he's just going to have different options with Al Horford out there and even running a pick and roll with Gordon Hayward. He's going to have a lot of options and Brad Stevens has the ability to unlock a lot of things there too so who do you think is the guy whose uh, opinion will change the most here i think it's Kyrie. i don't know whether it'll change the most or whether it'll get solidified but to me he's the most fascinating player in the nba like he's he's put the pressure on himself he asked for a trade from lebron james he said he wants to change his playing style he wants to play team basketball he wants to play be a complete point guard well, he has a perfect chance to show it to us he has the coach in brad stevens he has a system in where Isaiah Thomas was absolutely electric last season, everything is set up for Kyrie Irving to do the things he's wanted, to prove himself as the player he wants to be known as. Well, here's your chance, Kyrie. Show it to us, man. And maybe he will, maybe he won't. It's going to be fun watching him try because either he's going to score a ton of points and he's going to help the Celtics a ton because he's going to lift everybody else up, or he's going to score a ton of points, and he's not going to help them as much because he's not as willing to be a facilitator, which is what they're ultimately going to need because he needs to be the guy for this year's team. It's, there's no LeBron James anymore to lift everybody else up. It's on Kyrie Irving now, and, and there are a lot more responsibilities on his shoulder now, even though he's done a lot of incredible things as a scorer. Now he needs to be that complete point guard that he says he wants to be. Let's blast through the rest of this stuff. The rookies are going to have an impact. We know Jason Tatum's going to have an impact. I guess the first question is how big of an impact will Tatum have? I, I, I'm i going to put the expectation at kind of what Jalen Brown did last year. And maybe a little bit better offensively, but not quite as good defensively. And so I, I, I don't know. What do you think? What do you think the number would be on what he can average per game? You think he can get up to 15 points a game? Tatum? No. Yeah. No, no, no. He, he won't play enough to, to average 15. I don't think unless unless he's just absolutely great. I, I would say more like 10. I, I think I think he'll be an isolation type guy, a threat against some some backup guys. I, I think if if he can extend his range to the three point arc, that's great. Uh, yeah, I mean, 
15 is a lot. <laughs> no, I know. I know. But that's, uh, you know, I'm kind of going back to the best case scenario. Okay, so let's just wrap this up here with our best guess on how the season ends. Jay, where do you think this season goes? I think they're very similar to what they were last year. I yeah. think they win about 50, low 50 games, 50, low 50s. Um, maybe get to the Eastern Conference Finals. I think the Wizards are still really good. I think the Raptors are still really good. I think the Bucks will be really good. And I think Cleveland's still a cut above until anyone else proves it. Yeah, I, you know, with Isaiah Thomas coming back in January, they're going to have enough time. And I think Isaiah can give Cleveland what Kyrie gave Cleveland last year. So I wouldn't be shocked if the Celtics season was a mirror image of last year. You know, the details will be a little bit different. It'll be a different guy coming through in the fourth quarter. But I wouldn't be surprised if it's another hard-fought semifinal with the Wizards and a conference finals loss to Cleveland. But I think the conference finals loss to Cleveland would be a little bit more competitive. But we'll see. That's it. That's where we see things going for the Boston Celtics. We are the Rain and Jays, John Corrales, Jay King. Check us out at by Jay King on Twitter and me at Reds Army underscore John. And, of course, look for the Lockdown Celtics podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. The roster is just loaded. How are they going to deal without any bigs? What is are Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown going to develop into it? Obviously, Hayward and Irving in the backcourt. Celtics, just remarkable. Let's get the fantasy look from Josh Lloyd. Hi, guys. Josh Lloyd from Locked On Fantasy Basketball. Back again to talk about the fantasy value on the Boston Celtics. I think Kyrie Irving gets a bump coming across from Cleveland. He is a solid end of the first round, start of the second round target. Gordon Haywood's being a little bit overdrafted, but he is a strong third round player. I think Al Horford's being undervalued. He's going to have to take on a lot of minutes in that front court, which is lacking a little bit of depth. And he was significantly better than where he's being drafted this year. And I'm really keen on Marcus Smart. Even with his poor shooting, the other stuff that he does makes him a top 100 player. And he's getting drafted significantly outside of that. If the shot comes around to any degree, he has a, a real chance to be a top 100, or sorry, not even a top 100, a top 50 guy. Jalen Brown is likely to start. I don't think he offers very much fantasy-wise, same as Marcus Morris's starters. Well, Jason Tatum just won't get enough playing time to be useful fantasy targets this season. Thank you very much, Josh. Appreciate it. Boston, they added efficient offensive players. That's the thing they really did. They lost Isaiah Thomas, who had an incredible year. But Kyrie Irving is a positive 1.2 pack. That puts him in the elite. Anything over two is highly elite. So Kyrie probably needs to get more positive or more efficient if he's really going to carry them. Gordon Hayward comes to them as another highly efficient offensive player, 1.6 pack. He got to the free throw line in 13% of his possessions last year. Very, very, very uh, efficient player. Not one of the elite, but both, and both of those probably need to get into another stratosphere. They did lose very efficient offensive players. Jay Crowder was a 1.4 pack. Amir Johnson, 0.8. Kelly Olenek, 0.7. Al Horford was just an average offensive player last year. And Jalen Brown was a minus 0.2. Obviously, Marcus Smart, one of the least efficient offensive players in the league at minus 1.4. Their offense is going to have to do some work to catch up to what they lost with Isaiah Thomas's brilliant season last year. It'll be interesting to see if Kyrie Irving can jump on that. And one thing that's worth noting, Marcus Morris last year, really very, very poor offensive offensive player, only went to the free throw line 7% of his possessions, shot 
33% from three for a minus 1.3 pack, which is one of the least efficient offensive players who actually got real time last year, particularly 32 minutes. So curious to see on his integration into the Celtics. Let's move over to Gavin Shaw. He hosts the Brooklyn Nets Locked On Nets program, and the Nets under Sean Marks are in year two of their rebuild. And welcome into the Brooklyn Nets season preview. I'm Gavin Shaw alongside Josh Bass. And Josh, we're going to start this off talking about the two or three biggest storylines going into camp. Yes, so uh, one big storyline. Obviously, the Nets traded Brooke Lopez, their franchise stalwart of many years, to the Los Angeles Lakers for D'Angelo Russell. So how do we think D'Angelo Russell and Jeremy Lin are going to fit together handling the ball in the backcourt? Yeah, you know, that, that's, that's been a big topic of conversation on our podcast. And I've been of the opinion all summer and going into the season that Jeremy Lin has to be the lead ball handler in that scenario. He was so good at the end of the season when the Nets were really thriving after the All-Star break, uh, playing near 500 basketball, which is a high standard in Brooklyn. Um, and yeah, I just I just think the offense has to center around him and D'Lo is getting there, but he just hasn't put it all together as a creator yet and as a guy who can really break down a defense while Jeremy Lin has. I completely agree. Obviously, the Nets invested a lot in D'Angelo Russell and he's going to be a big part of their future regardless. But right now, Jeremy Lin is one of the better point guards in the league. I think definitely a top 20 guy at the position and someone that can really lend a lot of stability uh, for the Nets' young team. All right, our next big question. This is one that we don't necessarily agree on. The starting lineup for the Nets, you could argue there's a battle at point guard. Um, there's a battle for who starts at, a, at the on the wing. There's a battle at power forward. Uh, Timofey Mozgov is the starting center, so I don't think you can say uh, that position is solidified no matter how bad the other options are. Uh, what says you on that Yeah, one? I think it's a little bit... Um, it's a little bit weird to say that Timofey Mozgov probably has the uh, best stranglehold on a starting position. He really doesn't have any competition at the five. And when you look at the one through four spots, uh, a lot of similar guys on the Nets, Jeremy Lin and D'Angelo Russell, Damari Carroll and um, and Rondé Hollis-Jefferson, Alan Crabb and Karis LeVert, a lot of guys with similar skill sets um, and similar talent levels. So it's going to be interesting to see how Kenny Atkinson fits that together. Yeah, I think our best bet right now is Lynn, Russell, Crab, uh, RHJ, and Mozgov. I was saying Carroll all summer, but just the initial feedback we've gotten from camp is I'm a Carroll at the floor RHJ guy. is I'm a Carroll. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, our whole thing was like the Nets prioritize shooting. RHJ can't shoot. Carroll can, theoretically. So a little bit left in the tank defensively. So I'm, I'm a big uh, Carroll stan in that argument. But, you know, RHJ just played so well at the end of the year, at least on the defensive end. So that is theoretically interesting with him. Starting. All right, final big question uh, for the Nets season. Will Allen Crabb be worth it? The Nets uh, committed to, uh, well, I guess not $75 million anymore, but it's one year. Yeah, about $57 million left over three years. And I think the obvious answer to this question is no. I mean, Crabb is a good shooter, but he doesn't do much else. He already sustained an ankle injury very early on in camp, so he might struggle to gel with new teammates um, early on in the season. I don't think he was going to be worth it, uh, but he's an interesting shot for the Nets to take and someone that could develop in the long term. Yeah, he, he was such an elite shooter over a strong number of attempts last year. You, you removed Pau Gasol, who only took about 100 threes from the conversation. Second most accurate three-point shooter in the entire NBA. So that, in this Nets offense, that prioritizes threes at the expense of all else. I think he has a chance to explode. And if he does, that could be involved in the Nets' best-case scenario, Josh. Yes, uh, and I think we both agree that the best-case scenario is guys like D'Angelo Russell uh, or Alan Crabb or even Karis LeVert taking a leap with their skill sets. Uh, for Russell, that might be his playmaking and his efficiency. Levert, that might be his scoring and aggressiveness. Crab, that might be his floor game. And if those things all combine together, then we could see a Nets team, along with steadying presence in Jeremy Lin and Damari Carroll, that could push for uh, high 30s in win total. All right, and conversely, we have the worst-case scenario. And we said this team that 
unfortunately does not have a first round pick for one final year. I uh, had to, sorry. For yeah. Putting rubbing salt in the wounds. Yeah. I, I throw it out there uh, every once in a while, but um, the priority has to be development. It has to be getting the guys that are already on the roster in a position to succeed and trading for someone like D'Angelo Russell was a way to kind of replicate those lost top five picks because they acquired that type of talent. And that's what the Nets organization believes. And that's why they went out and traded their franchise stalwart to go get him. But if he doesn't take a step forward and there are locker room issues around him and I'm not one of those guys that buys that Russell is is a permanent problem as as some in the Lakers organization have implied but if, if it turns out that he is and the Nets kind of bank their future on this guy who just doesn't have the personality to get it done and fit in and succeed in the NBA and on this Nets team in particular that's trying to build almost a Spursian atmosphere that doesn't just tank this season that ultimately doesn't matter that much that tanks their entire future so the downside despite not having a pick this year, probably because they don't have a pick this year, is quite bad for the Nets. All right, Josh, uh, at the end of the season, who, who are you thinking of differently on this Nets team? I think Karis LeVert is someone that people around the league are really going to uh, see as someone who could be a future, um, I'll even say borderline all-star. I think right now he's considered a good prospect and someone with a nice all-around game, but he's shown his potential late last season. He was really good, good after the all-star break, um, shot 48% from the field, really improved his three-point percentage, and then showed some flashes at summer league as well. So I think he's going to be a um, better version of Nicholas Batum. That's kind of the comparison that a lot of people make. And I think people around the league are going to, really going to see that he could be a future stud. Yeah, I'll do you one better, Josh. I have two guys for you. I think this is Jeremy Lin's breakout season, and you don't normally say that about a guy. How old is he, 27, 28, 29 now? Yeah, somewhere, I think about 28. Somewhere in that range, you don't normally think of a guy kind of emerging that year. But he really did, over 36 minutes, put up near superstar stats last year. I don't quite have the numbers in front of me, but it was around 23 points, 7 to 8 assists, 5.5 rebounds a night uh, per 36 for Jeremy Lin. So if he's able to stay healthy, no Brooke Lopez. Um, the ball is in his hands. People talk about D'Angelo Russell potentially taking away from him. There's not really another creator on this team, so he's still going to have the ball plenty. I think he's going to score efficiently. I think he's going to rack up big assist numbers surrounded by big-time shooters. Um, this is going to be his breakout year, potentially even uh, resulting in all-star berth. Uh, second guy, we'll get to very quickly, Alan Crabb, I think, goes from a role player to a rich man's role player. He's going to be really, <laughs> really good in, in that role, and he's, he's going to be, I think, one of the premier three-point shooters in the NBA. Yeah, from crab salad to crab cakes. Love it. All right, uh, career trajectory, guy who could be most affected this season, or at least in your mind, who, who, who could fluctuate the most? I think Rondé Hollis-Jefferson is at a turning point in his career right now. Uh, he showed promise throughout his first uh, two seasons, but he's someone that has struggled to stay healthy, and I'm not sure if he is going to become much of a player in this league. Just his weaknesses are so profound. Uh, can't shoot at all. His dribbling really needs work. It uh, just does not have a role in the offensive end. And I think he's someone that could really fall out of favor uh, with the Nets this year unless he shows a significant skill development. All right, speed round. A rookie who will have an impact. Uh, the Nets draft Only rookie. Jared Allen out of Texas. Uh, we both think he is super raw, uh, going to play a bit in the second half of the year, show some flashes, and look like a really good player, but there's no way he makes a decided positive impact this season. Josh, your best guess on how the season goes. Uh, I, you can book, you can take this to the bank, 32-50, and 50, 11 seed. Ah, Nets fans, get excited at 11 seed with no pick. Back to you, David. Wow, that is some serious orange juice in your cereal by accident right there at the end of that. How about fantasy value? Josh Lloyd checks in on that. 
Hi guys, Josh Lloyd from Locked On Fantasy Basketball here, talking about the Brooklyn Nets and their fantasy value. Tons of value on bad teams always, and this team's got plenty of players who are being undervalued. I like D'Angelo Russell as a top 50 guy this year, and you can get him a couple of rounds later than that. His value is hitting threes, getting assists, and steals, and he's got a chance to crack 20 points. Maybe he doesn't, but he doesn't even need that to outplay his average draft position. Same as Jeremy Lin, who's criminally being taken at pick 96 in ESPN leagues. Just way too low. He is a top 60 player for this season. Um, Karis LeVert, Probably not going to get enough minutes as much as I love his fantasy game. I don't mind Tim Mozgov as a late-round flyer, especially when big men can be hard to find. And Rondé Hollis-Jefferson, who should be the power forward starter, is a great source of rebounds, out-of-position rebounds. Steals and blocks are pretty decent for him as well, so I like him as a late-round player. While Alan Crabb, who's shown really nothing of a fantasy game, the opportunity is going to be there, so that's what you want to do with one of your late picks. Take a guy who's getting an increased opportunity who could really step forward, but I wouldn't be spending too much on Crabb. The value here on this team is really spread, you know, pretty, or pretty concentrated amongst D'Angelo Russell and Jeremy Lin. Russell's development will be interesting. Last year, just shot 35% from three. Didn't go to the line very often. Actually was another below-average offensive player on his pack rating at negative one. Now, that's not uncommon for young players, so it will be interesting to see if he takes that jump. Jeremy Lin will is mentioned there by Josh Lloyd and see what time he gets. He's actually usually an above-average offensive player because he goes to the line a lot 11 percent of his possessions at the line last year now the charlotte hornets made some interesting moves they went and got dwight howard much to evidently atlanta hawks's glee they also had a great year from kemba walker last year steve clifford has his team this is an Really interesting team to be in an Eastern Conference where we talk about four teams, Washington, Boston, Cleveland, and Toronto. Are the Charlotte Hornets the team that can break through into that top five? Let's find out from our Locked On Hornets crew. All right, the two or three biggest storylines going into camp for the Charlotte Hornets are these. Number one, how will Dwight Howard change the way this team plays offensively and defensively? This is a team not known to uh, get a lot of offensive rebounds. And Dwight Howard, one of the most aggressive offensive rebounders in the league last season, how will he change things there? And a physical presence inside on defense. They haven't had that in a while. Secondly, is the second unit better? The second unit killed them last season, made them lose a lot of close games. We'll be paying attention to that for sure. And finally, can Kimball Walker follow up his all-star performance? Of course, getting his first all-star bid last season, but just barely so many great guards in this league right now, uh, Coach Steve Clifford said Kimball Walker's been an all-star for two seasons, but because of that guard depth, he just gets his first bid last season. Can he follow it up, prove that he's not just a fluke? David, what needs to happen for the best-case scenario to play out for the Charlotte Hornets? Yeah, a lot of moving parts here, and, and a couple of them have to do with new additions. I mean, obviously, Dwight Howard, if he integrates seamlessly into this team, and doesn't cause a lot of friction both on and off the court. But really, if his on-court play can add to this team what they did last year, um, help them in the rebounding department, like you said, and just how that affects Cody Zeller going to the bench, if he can make that bitch unit take a step forward, certainly from a defensive standpoint, but also just not having the drop-off they did last year. That's something Clifford talked about in the preseason press conferences as well. And another thing, if Jeremy Lamb can finally take the step to being the consistent player he's talked about since he arrived here in Charlotte, you know, we've heard every year how he's rededicated himself to uh, getting healthy and then keeping his body right. And if he can finally take that step forward, I think that would help this team a lot 
And finally, Doug, if they never have to use a backup point guard, if Kimball Walker can play all the minutes mm. of point guard, and they and they never have to go to their backup, because right now with Michael Carter Williams and or Julian Stone both facing some sort of injury, the point guard depth wasn't good to start with, and it's certainly not really good right now. I think they'll rely on Nick Batum a little more. We'll see what Malik Monk can do back there, but that would be the best case scenario. Yeah, worst case scenario, I think, is that Dwight Howard either physically or mentally implodes. He's already uh, dealt with uh, some back tightness in training camp, uh, but he fully practiced in the in the last uh, in the last practice, so seemingly okay. But if he if if he if the experiment between Dwight Howard and Steve Clifford does not go well, and we have another scenario similar to Atlanta and Houston and Los Angeles, then that could lead to a worst case scenario. Also. If guys like Frank Kaminsky and Jeremy Lamb, who had a great post-All-Star break stat performances, start slow and, again, handicap what that second unit can do, I think that's a worst-case scenario. And then finally, I'll go to Kimball Walker. If we see kind of a massive step back for Kimball Walker after two seasons where he's improved his shooting and efficiency greatly, if we see a big regression, if maybe the if NBA defenses sort of figure out Kimball Walker – then that could be a worst-case scenario for the Charlotte Hornets. All right, the player most likely to be thought of differently at the end of the season. Yeah, this is interesting for this team because I think for the most part, they are uh, pretty known. You know, these players are Mm -hmm. what they are. Uh, Outside of the rookies, um, I think most of these players have established themselves as the player they are and are going to be in the NBA. I don't see Dwight Howard necessarily rewriting the narrative to his career just with uh, this stop in Charlotte. So, Again, I'm going back to Frank Kaminsky. We've talked about him a lot in this offseason because I think there's the potential there for him to take a step forward. He spoke rather emotionally about his lung injury and the surgery he had to have before the start of last season. They kind of uh, had to ramp up his uh, his preparation and, and may have caused him to kind of slow down during the season and not do what he wanted to do. But look, you know, last season, 12 points, five rebounds. In February, although 18.7 rebounds started in 9 out of 11 games in February, in 20 games playing more than 30 minutes, 17 points and 6 rebounds. So mm-hmm. when he got the volume of minutes, the production was there. The consistency was the issue. So I think if he can take a, a step forward, I think um, he's got a chance to kind of rewrite his role in the NBA. Next up, the player whose career trajectory is most impacted this season, either good or bad, I almost went with Michael Kidd-Gilchrist here because he saw a bit of a regression last season, did not average over 10 points a game, uh, and, and it was, was his stats were very similar to his rookie year and even said at the end of the season that he felt like a rookie. So this will be a big season for him in terms of showing that he can be impactful on both sides of the floor and improving uh, his spot-up defense, which took a dip last season as well. But I'm not picking MKG. I feel like Dwight Howard is the player whose career trajectory is most impacted this season, either good or bad, because I honestly feel like this could be a last chance for Dwight Howard. If he can't mesh, mesh with head coach Steve Clifford, who helped him get a championship in Orlando, who he respects, who he trusts, if he can't feel good about being on this roster and his place within this roster, then then I don't know where in the NBA he could fit in. 
where he would be satisfied. So for Dwight Howard, I really feel like he has to embrace this opportunity uh, both on and off the court. And everything so far has signaled that he is doing that. And we'll have to see if it translates to on-court success as well. All right, David, the Hornets have two rookies, Malik Monk and Dwayne Bacon. Which rookie will have an impact and how much? Yeah, I mean, how much is the real question? Rookies under Steve Clifford have gotten the rap for not playing that much, and that may be a bit unfair to Clifford. You know, I think if you look back, Cody Zeller played a good amount. Even Frank Kaminsky played a pretty fair amount for being a rookie. So, I mean, I think Clifford's willing to play these guys if they show they can contribute and be competent out there. Obviously, they're asking a lot of Malik Monk. They're asking him to come in and be a scorer, maybe handle the ball some as well with those issues at backup point guard. So I think he's got the biggest chance to – have an impact going back to that best case scenario. If he is playing well enough to be in the rookie of the year conversation, that's probably going to mean scoring. So that's going to be a best case scenario for the Hornets. But I also think Bacon is going to have a chance to shine as well. You know, they really like his confidence and scoring, of course, but I think they also like his stature and him being a bigger guy, being able to guard some of these uh, athletic wings in the NBA. These two guys bring athleticism, something this team was sorely lacking last year and the ability to guard multiple positions and a lot of confidence. So I think they're both going to get their chance out there on the court. You know, uh, Monk obviously being the more high-profile guy and being asked of uh, a lot from him, I think he's going to have the chance to shine, at least to start over Bacon. All right, real quick, your best guess on how the season for the Charlotte Hornets ends. Well, Doug, you know, this team is even Steven, right? A lot of the predictions have them right at, at 500, and that seems like where it's been um, for most of the last couple of years. But I think 4-5 is the high point for this team um, in the East. That's certainly where they should be sitting. So I'll say the four position. I'll say they get that home court slot and they get that first round win that they've been looking for seemingly forever. Yeah, David, I'm going to go fifth seed as well. I think they, they get the upset in the first round series and they lose a very tight one in the second round. Uh, I'm Doug. He's David. This has been Locked on Hornets. Go Hornets. Go America. Let's swarm a Charlotte. So Doug and David see them being that top four team I just mentioned. Really interesting. Let's see what Josh Lloyd says about fantasy value with the Charlotte Hornets. Hi guys, Josh Lloyd from Locked On Fantasy Basketball back talking about the Charlotte Hornets fantasy value. Kemba Walker, probably going a little bit too high for me in drafts, but he's a strong third round point guard, especially if you don't need those high assist numbers. Well, Nick Batum continues just to be what he is, a high assist wing who's in that 45 to 60 range of drafts. Cody Zeller is going to take a significant hit with Dwight Howard returning, or not returning, joining the team. And as for Dwight, he's only of value if you're punting free throws. If you're in a rotisserie league, almost impossible to draft him. But even in a role which could see him have limited minutes, I think that he can be a strong top 50 player in a punt free throw type build. Michael Kidd-Gilchrist will get you the defensive numbers, decent late-round picks, same as Marvin Williams, although he is at a minimal risk of losing some minutes to Frank Kaminsky. While as for Frank, he's being drafted at pick 109, and that's way too high for standard leagues. Uh, he should, probably shouldn't be drafted in any of those sort of formats. I don't really see Malik Monk as a rookie being able to crack the uh, standard league fantasy value for the majority of this season either. Thank you, Josh. From a pack rating, look at this team offensively. So a lot I really like. One of my beliefs on pack is if you have every player in your team above average, 
then you're going to be much better than people realize. They don't have a pack superstar like a Durant or a Curry or a Harden or anyone of that nature. Dwight Howard is positive last year in Atlanta. Cody Zeller was really valuable to them, and we'll see whether he can hold it. But most of their guys generally stay positive. Now, Nicholas Batum, coming off his great 15-16 season, did not last year. And so if he can get back to where he was a year ago, or two years ago, excuse me, uh, in the 15-16, where he was a positive pack player, played above average offensively, he was a .2-plus pack. What that means is that during his time on the floor, he the possessions he used, he scored .2 points more than the average player would have. Last year, he was the opposite. He was a negative .7, so that's really a problem. Frank Kaminsky was another minus pack player. Hopefully his development, if Batum gets back up to an average pack player, this team's loaded with above-average offensive players, and maybe that fourth seed is the right spot. Another team that went the other direction, like the Atlanta Hawks, is the Chicago Bulls. Cody Westerland, Sean Hiking host Locked On Bulls, and they give us the breakdown on the Windy City team. All right, welcome to the Locked On Bulls season preview show for the Locked On NBA channel. I'm Sean Hyken. With me, as always, Cody Westerlin. We're the co-hosts of Locked On Bulls. So, Cody, we're a week into training camp. What do you think are the biggest storylines? I'm looking at, for the rebuilding Bulls after the trade of Jimmy Butler, who on this team has some star power? Because you've got to have star power in the NBA. And there's two names to look at, and that's Zach Levine and Lowry Markkinen. Uh, obviously, Levine, the centerpiece of the Butler trade, uh, coming back from ACL tear last February, still rehabbing, isn't expected to probably join the team in game action until December-ish, sometime in there. Um, but can he be a transcendent offensive player? I think we've had hints of that previously. Um, now, two-way play is a different thing. Um, but this team needs people who are going to have star power in the future. Lowry Markin in the rookie uh, had a good Eurobasket a slate of games for Finland, but what's he made out of in his rookie season? I think um, that might be the most important thing for the Bulls throughout this year, in addition to just player progress everywhere. But what do you think? Yeah, I think that's definitely one of the biggest storylines. The other one, as far as a little bit more specific, like position battle, I'm really interested to see how the power forward rotation okay. shakes out because you know you've got Nikola Mirotic, who they just re-signed the day before training camp. Finally, like that, you know, that kind of dragged out over the summer. And then Markkanen, who you just mentioned, you know, he was the number seven overall pick, one of the guys they got back in the Butler trade, and he had a very strong performance at Eurobasket for uh, Finland last month. And then, you you know, Bobby Portis is still there, too. He's going into his yeah. third year. He maybe hasn't been as good as people kind of expected him to his first couple of years, but, you know, they are still high on him as an organization. They still think he's got some potential. I'm interested to see how those minutes kind of shake out. Now, this is a loaded question when we... Uh Bring up what's the best case scenario for the Bulls this year? Tricky question, maybe if not loaded, but I don't think it's that tricky for a team that's trying to rebuild so so much. What is the best case scenario when you think about um, wins not mattering this year? I think that it's a pretty clear best case scenario. The best case scenario is they finish with the worst record in the league and therefore the highest chances of getting the number one overall pick in the lottery. But you also can look back at the season and say that most of the important guys on the roster got better. Like, you look at it and say, okay, Lowry Markkinen was able to adjust to the NBA. You know, maybe Bobby Portis, Jerry and Grant, some of those guys, Chris Dunn, have all made progress. So you can look at it and say, these guys are going to be promising players for the future. You want to have that. Obviously, you want the losses because you want the lottery balls. But 
you don't want their losses to come because the young players just stagnate and don't get better. Yeah, I'm looking at that too. Like, it's a crapshoot with the lottery. You can only do so much, and that's put your team in position to have a 25% chance to get that first pick, which is really important. And the draft's deep enough next year that any of the top three picks, the Bulls should be fine in having an opportunity to add uh, a difference maker uh, and bring that guy along. So I'm going to look at best-case scenario. I'm kind of keying in on Chris Dunn, I think, yeah. be important. Um, he had a poor rookie season with the Timberwolves, also part of the Jimmy Butler uh, trade. And look, he's probably going to be the starting point guard on opening night. How he comes along, best case scenario, I think Dunn and Denzel Valentine are two names um, out of that 2016 draft would be second-year guys for the Bulls who were unimpressive as rookies, who have a lot bigger opportunity now. If those guys start looking much more like their draft standing where they were chosen, Dunn obviously in the top five, Valentine at uh, number 14 overall in 2016. That's a really big deal um, because I do think, I mentioned Levine and Markkinen already, uh, I, I do think those guys have um, more time, obviously, and just the ability that we will see flash, but there's more question marks with Dunn and Valentine. Uh, what's the worst-case scenario for this Bulls team? I think probably just the opposite of that. Like, forget the wins and losses for a second, but just, you know, you look at it and at the end of the season and say, you know, you're not really seeing the kind of progress that you want out of these young guys. You know, maybe Bobby Portis, like, doesn't get better and doesn't get more consistent. Maybe Nikola Mirotic has another bad year. Maybe uh, Denzel Valentine, you don't see out of him what they saw out of him when they drafted him with the 14th overall pick last year. Maybe Chris Dunn, who they have high hopes is going to be better than he was in Minnesota last year, isn't better. Maybe Zach Levine has some injury setbacks. Like, maybe you look at the thing, because no, I think no matter what, best case or worst case scenario, they're going to have one of the two or three worst records in the league, but you want to look back and say... These guys got better. You don't want to look back and say, okay, these guys all just stagnated. None of these guys are really promising pieces for the future. Worst case scenario is the Bulls somehow have like the fourth worst record because other teams (laughs) do a complete tank job too, knowing this is the last year of the NBA draft of 25% odds for the first record before lottery reform kicks in in 2019. And somehow they get pushed down another peg or something, and all of a sudden they have the number five overall pick, and they're not... uh, Able to add Michael Porter, Luka uh, Doncic, Luka Doncic, Marvin Bagley, yeah. Marvin Bagley. One of those three, I think, needs to be on the Bulls uh, a year from now when we're talking. So that would be the worst-case scenario. Somehow something happened where they didn't get a top-three pick um, would not be good for them. Player on the Bulls most likely to be thought of differently, good or bad, by season's end. I think Chris Dunn is kind of the obvious okay. answer here because he, you know, he was the fifth overall pick. They had pretty serious talks with the Celtics last year at the draft about a Jimmy Butler trade that would have involved the number three overall pick. That's who they wanted, and so he was a big part of the trade. And he was, you know, every, as everybody knows, and as Chris Dunn has admitted himself on multiple occasions, he had a bad rookie season in Minnesota. But they're still high on his potential. They think he can make an impact in the defensive end. He obviously can't shoot yet, but Hoiberg's been working on that with him. I don't even need him to be, like, a top-tier starting point guard in the NBA. If he can just become a usable rotation player who you can count on to play solid defense and kind of lead the offense at least well enough, you know, I think that would be a successful year for him. You mentioned his shot. He shot just shy of 38% as a rookie. In from the field. Yeah, from the field. From not the good. field, not three-point range. Not good. 28%, 29% from three-point range for him. And you mentioned shot doctor Fred Hoiberg working with him uh, early in training camp. And look, that's a guy whose career trajectory matters right now. I think he's going to be able to play good defense his entire NBA career, have the right attitude, work hard. 
But if in your first two years, if year two, you don't show something by the end of it by way of your shooting improving, uh, that's hinting at you are what you are going to be. You know what I mean? Right. Not a lot of NBA players taken in the top five just are really bad for two years and then get good. You know what I mean? There's more of an upward trajectory from year to year, and you've proved something in those first two years. You didn't prove a lot as a rookie, so this year, too, uh, is big for the Bulls and big for him as far as his career trajectory goes as well. Rookie who will have the most impact. Well, there's only one on the Bulls, Lowry Markkinen. Yeah, and the the Bulls do have high hopes. It's not like, in a lot of cases, you know, a guy gets drafted, he probably isn't going to play much his rookie year. Lowry Markkinen and the Bulls are expecting to be a contributor, and obviously, you know, they took him number seven overall off the Butler trade after, you know, they got that pick from Minnesota. They, you know, he obviously had a great performance in Eurobasket. They think that he is going to be a piece for them long term, and in a rebuilding year, there's no reason not to give him a lot of minutes. Your best guess, Sean, for how the season ends. I see win total in the low 20s. Bulls having a top three pick next year. In I I think like 23 or 24 wins is probably where I'd have them. And yeah, they're going to be in the mix with Brooklyn, Phoenix, some Atlanta, some of those other teams that are in that same stage. Like I don't know if I can necessarily say I think they're going to have the worst record in the league, but I am hard pressed to find a team that is. De- definitively worse than them, so I think it's a clear possibility. Yeah, and that'll be what you'll be watching all year with the Bulls. Uh, rebuilding Bulls a little different um, from in the past for them. The one point of intrigue is what Zach Levine looks like when he comes back from the ACL injury. We're kind of expecting December for a return there, but you know, you hope that he can kind of stay healthy and have a, you know, at least show like that, you know, that he could be that guy for the future. Absolutely. That's something you want. That's what we'll be watching the 2017-2018 Chicago Bulls. Yeah, make sure you're following us on Twitter at Locked on Bulls. Follow me on Twitter at Hiken. Follow Cody on Twitter at Cody Westerland. And subscribe to us and leave us a review. Uh, thanks for listening to the Locked on NBA preview. And again, we toss it down under to our Locked on Fantasy Basketball man, Josh Lloyd. Hi, guys. It's Josh Lloyd from Locked on Fantasy Basketball back talking about the Chicago Bulls, a team that could have the worst fantasy value of any team in the NBA Zach Levine could be a top 50 guy if he wasn't hurt. We don't know when he is coming back, and even when he does, he won't be playing 37 minutes a night, not like he did last season. Dwayne Wade's at risk of getting bored out and finding himself in a less favorable situation. So at his current ADP, not really a value pick. A guy that I am interested in, but he remains unsigned, is Nikola Miritich, who has got the ability to crack the top 50, but Fred Hoiberg has just been increasingly frustrating in terms of using him throughout his two seasons in control there. So Miritich is a great last-round pick, in my in my opinion, as is Chris Dunn, who was terrible last season, but can offer the assists and steals, but you do have to watch your percentages. Robin Lopez is a very low upside guy who could find himself in the Dwayne Wade situation, but if you want to take a flyer on someone late, I like Denzel Valentine, who has a chance to, to grab that starting small forward job, and his ability to rack up fantasy stats is much more advanced than Paul Zipser, his competition there, so fantasy owners should be rooting for Valentine to get that job. Even if it doesn't look possible, he is a guy to have a look at in those last rounds. So we've touched on Chicago. Not a lot to be said about this team and their pack ratings and that. I'm going to move past them. We've touched on Atlanta. The big dogs in the Eastern Conference are the Boston Celtics and the Cleveland Cavaliers. And let's find out what Chris Manning thinks of where the Cavaliers sit. He hosts Locked On Cavaliers. Here's Chris. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Manning. I am the host of the Locked On Cavaliers podcast here today to give you a season preview for the Cleveland Cavaliers. And as always, they're one of the most interesting teams in the NBA. You can find me on Twitter at CWM Rights. Follow the pod on Twitter at Locked On Cavs and find us on Facebook there as well. 
up first, the three biggest Cavs storylines. Number one is Dwayne Wade and his arrival, how he's going to fit in with the Cavs. That is something, it's a known role he's going to play, whether he's going to see some time as the backup point guard, whether he'll spend more time with the two, whether he's going to start or come off the bench. It's a very to-be-determined situation. But he, they're planning on him playing a big role in what he can provide this team and potentially give it some sort of jolts could be really big for them. Then you have how they're going to replace Kyrie Irving at point guard. He obviously produced so much for them. He had the biggest shot in franchise history. How will Isaiah Thomas, once he gets back, and Derrick Rose, and maybe Jose Calderon or Kay Felder, how are they going to replace what Kyrie does? And can Wade supplement that? Can, can LeBron um, take on some of that creation in there as well? And lastly, you know, how will this team change with these roster changes? This is a different team. You have Jay Crowder in, you have Dwayne Wade in, you have Derrick Rose and Isaiah Thomas in. No Kyrie really in itself changes a lot. And this is going to be a different team. We'll see how this team adapts and changes this season. Um, for the best case scenario for how, what will, for the Cavs to have everything go right and to, for the best case, them maybe win a title. I think everything has to really gel, and they have to hit some sort of different level as a result of that gelling. So can this team get better on defense? Does Jake Crowder make them more versatile in different ways? Can they play smaller now uh, more effectively? Even if they're playing differently and everything changes, can they make this work in a way? I mean, I think there are some legit concerns about this team's spacing now. I think you have some weird pieces. Like, I don't think Rose is a great fit with LeBron, but can they sort of gel and hit a new level and, and form a new identity that makes them better off, even if they're different and, and not quite exactly the same post Kyrie? And I think you need MVP level LeBron as well. You need a great season from the guy who's still the best player in the world, I think, in order to get where you want to go. On the other end of this, for the Cavs to have their worst case scenario, which is probably losing in the Eastern Conference Finals. This means a lot doesn't go right. Things don't gel. Isaiah maybe never gets healthy, doesn't fit with LeBron, and the Cavs have to try to force that old identity of iso ball and just attacking in the way they did in a sort of one-dimensional bludgeoning way, in a way that doesn't work. I mean, you could you could have Isaiah just not come back. You could have Rose just be abysmal. Maybe Kevin Love's back gets really bad, and these things sort of fall apart. Those are, those are things that could happen. Those are the worst-case scenarios. But the, the obvious big thing there for me, in my mind, of what what can make this season go bad is if LeBron actually does age in a significant way. I, I think in a, in, a, in a way that is sort of concerning and maybe hasn't been talked about enough yet is that this team really is going to be dependent on LeBron. I, I don't think it's quite going to be like OKC last year where Russ had to just be this, this superhuman to carry that team. But I think the narrative around LeBron this year could be this is a guy that lost his second best player. There, there will be some undervaluing of what Kevin Love does. He's still very, very good. Maybe I think you could have argued that the last couple of years he was the second best player in the Cavs with Kyrie being the second most important player behind LeBron. I think you could have just situations where Rose doesn't work. Isaiah, maybe Isaiah never really comes back. Maybe Love just can't adapt to a, to a new role if they don't give him more to do. Lou could really give a lot to lots of LeBron, and maybe Wade just can't can't bring it as much as as we think he can right now. So that that could be a thing. And if LeBron isn't up for that, and he can't be up for that in the playoffs, that's going to be a problem as well. Uh, the, the player, in my mind, that could be thought differently at the end of this year is Kevin Love. I think there are a lot of guys that could have really interesting seasons. Isaiah is one of them. I think Derrick Rose is certainly one of them, and we'll get to him again later in this podcast. But I think Kevin Love is, is the guy 
that to, in my mind is really someone who could be seen as as different than he is right now. He, I think, could start at center, which would be new for him. Lou hasn't exactly said what he wants to do there, but that that's certainly a possibility at this point. You're looking at a guy who could get a bigger role for the first time in his Cavs career, who could be used more like Minnesota Kevin Love in a way we haven't really seen for more than some token post touches and token elbow touches, especially with Isaiah out, unless they really want to trust more to give to Derrick Rose and, and to Wade, which Wade would make some sense. But Kevin Love is a guy for me who could be really used as a hub this year. His fit against the Warriors is always going to be problematic. He's going to have those issues, but he's also a guy that could do a lot of good for this team and I think could take some of the burden off LeBron. One thing that really intrigues me with him is that could he be used as the hub of bench units in the way we've seen LeBron used. I think lineups, if you can get the right spacing, where it's love and Dwayne Wade, and maybe you have to put Fry out there, and you know maybe this means you have to play Corver in these, and you're going to have some defensive issues potentially, but I think something where it's, it's Wade, it's... It's love, whether he's at center power forward, could be really, really potent, at least in the regular season bench lineups. I don't know how sustainable they would be in the playoffs against the elite of the elites, but I like the idea of him kind of being used as a hub in a way that he really hasn't been, and I think that could solve some of the LeBron off-court issues. This could be a really, really big year for Kevin Love in my mind. The player on the Cavs that is most likely... To, be, to have the biggest change in career trajectory, the biggest impact on the career trajectory this year is Isaiah Thomas. Everyone knows about his hip at this point, how how it could really keep him from getting a big deal. He's a free agent next year. We don't know exactly when he's coming back. It seems like it could be January, but this is a big year for him. He's supposed to be getting paid next summer. That's what he wants. He has to earn that really this year. Last year, as good as he was, didn't really get the they couldn't really beat the Cavs and he got and he just ended up hurt gets traded for Kyrie get, you know, the flipping of the two top two teams in the East flipping their point guard it's, it's a weird trade in itself but for Isaiah this is the year he has to prove himself again and he's done it time and time and again but if he wants to get paid by the Cavs or somebody else next summer when there's not going to be a lot of money he has to prove that he's healthy for however long he can play and that he can be someone who truly is impactful and, and helps the Cavs win a title or at least reach the finals and plays a good part of the finals. He has to do that. Um, I mean, it could be a thing next summer where the Cavs, let's say they keep LeBron, which I, I think, again, is more like that's going to be something people are going to ask about, and I, I would just say don't think about that until next summer. I think you need to – it's not going to do any good to ponder that all year, but if you're looking at what the Cavs could do, Isaiah's a free agent. They might need to fill point guard, and, and Isaiah is maybe auditioning for that role in some way. And especially with how much money he could get as he heads in a free agency off a significant hip injury. Um, if you're looking at rookies on this Cavs team, there are two. Ante Zizic is one. They got him in the in the Kyrie trade. The question for him is can in can he eat minutes for Tristan Thompson so TT can get some more breaks. I think he's up to it, but uh, they have to be, just live with the growing pains of him, and we we don't exactly know what he, if he's going to get ahead of Fry there, uh, but he's someone to look at. And then you have Chetty Osman. It is unclear if he's gonna, if the Turkish international is going to get a spot. He's someone that I'm a, I'm a big fan of. I think he's very, very talented. He's someone that could, I think will have to adapt to the NBA. But I think if you look at how they talk about Jeff Green, you have Silver Jefferson, you have LeBron, Jay Crowder, Amon Schumpert, Kyle Korver. You have a lot of guys that play the two and three spots that are kind of ahead of him. I think a lot of time it can make sense for him. But he did get some money this summer, some actual money. 
Um, Lou doesn't seem to know him that well. He knows Jeff Green, and I think that's just that kind of stuff is going to keep him from maybe getting minutes, even though I think he's he's the best young prospect this team has. Um, and lastly, how the season will end in my mind is the Cavs are probably going to go back to the finals. I, I think they're still the class of the East. I think Boston has no answer for LeBron. They, they traded their best LeBron defender. I think if they are healthy, if all these things work out, if Derrick Rose, who I've talked about a lot in the show, can can be competent enough to be a good player on this team and fit well, they can still be the class of the East. I think Boston, I think the Bucks are obviously in the upswing. I think Washington and Toronto are all going to be there, but I think the Cavs should still be the best team in the East. They have LeBron James. That counts for a lot. I think they do lose in the finals again, probably against Golden State for the fourth time. I think they could win, but I think a lot have to go right for them to be able to do that. But I think this is a LeBron year. I think this is a big LeBron year. I think there's a very good chance to win MVP with the Cavs reaching the finals for a fourth straight time. Again, this has been Chris Manning from Lockdown Cavs. Give me a follow on Twitter at CWMRights. Subscribe to the pod where we get your podcast and give the pod a follow on Twitter at Lockdown Cavs. That is not the first time I've heard this idea of MVP talk for LeBron James. Interesting from Chris Manning. And Boston and Cleveland will start their rivalry on opening night, and it will probably run all the way through. Will it be in that Eastern Conference? Will, in fact, they be able to Cleveland make it back to the finals incredibly uh, again? We'll see. And is LeBron's final run in Cleveland? What an incredible year. It should be there with the integration of Isaiah Thomas the whole time. Now, it's a very interesting fantasy team, and that's where Josh Lloyd steps in. Hi guys, it's Josh Lloyd back from Locked On Fantasy Basketball talking about the fantasy value of the Cleveland Cavaliers. I still think LeBron James is a clear-cut first-round talent. Some don't agree, but I've got no problem with taking him inside the top 10. His free throws were an issue last year. I think that that does rebound a bit, and especially with Isaiah Thomas looking likely, he'll miss some time. LeBron could put up some really big numbers straight on. Uh, Isaiah Thomas, as for him, taking him at his ADP is an impossible move. Don't do it. We don't know when he's going to be back. Will it be December? Will it be January? I think his value would be solidly at the start of the third round if he was fully healthy, but he's not. As for Kevin Love, he will have a stronger period of time when Thomas is out and that will dial back a bit once Thomas does return but he is a strong power forward option in the third round and you could even make that move to grab him in the second. Jay Crowder loses a ton of value from last season probably not a standard league draftable guy in my opinion same as Tristan Thompson or J.R. Smith as for Derek Rose while Isaiah Thomas is out Rose is fine but even last season when the Knicks, when he was was the starter, he's not a great fantasy option anyway. So we're not talking about getting a top 50 guy here for a month or two months. You're talking about a guy who might crack the top 120. So very much not a high-priority guy, even if he is going to be starting with Thomas sidelined. It's worth noting when you look at Derrick Rose how much he improved from his last year in Chicago to the one year in New York. In the 15-16 season... In his 17 scoring opportunities a game, he was two points below the average player in the league. Minus two pack. One of the three worst offensive players in the league. Last year, still not great in his 17 scoring opportunities, minus .8. So he's still below league average and still a negative, but not nearly as bad as he was. And now possibly playing with someone like LeBron, you wonder whether that might improve him. I'm not a huge believer in that. But he might be able to be improved a little bit. The guys that they, they need to have a good season, J.R. Smith was really very poor last year at a minus 1.2. Otherwise, the Cleveland Cavaliers fit the qualifications. Everybody on that roster is an above-average pack player. Isaiah Thomas last year in Boston had an 
un, uh, one of the mo- was the second most efficient offensive player in the league behind Kevin Durant. If he can be anywhere close to that, coupled with LeBron's brilliance, his, LeBron hasn't slipped at all. LeBron's pack rating last year was 2.8, one of the most efficient players in the entire league. It was actually better than his 15-16 season, where his he was two points better than the league average uh, in his position average player in his possessions uh, and, and and just you know blew it out of the water. He's actually gotten better in each of the last three seasons. He went from 1.7 to a 2 to last year in his 21 scoring opportunities. He was 2.8 points better than league average. He's showing no signs of fatiguing. He's shoot, getting the free throw line just as much. He's still that superhuman player, and that's why Cleveland to the finals seems like a realistic expectation. Charlotte thinks they could bust into the top four. Is it possible the Pistons could do the same? Our final stop today is with our new host of Locked On Pistons. Hey, this is Matt Shook, and I'm the new host of the Locked On Pistons podcast, and here's your Detroit Pistons season preview. The biggest storyline for the team is going to be off the court at the beginning of this year. With Little Caesars Arena opening in downtown Detroit, it's going to be the first time the Pistons are playing in downtown Detroit in nearly 40 years. The facility is going to be shared with the Detroit Red Wings, and it's going to be part of the new District Detroit area, which is going to be connecting downtown and midtown in the Motor City. The reviews are pretty good so far, and fans like myself are going to be excited to check it out as the season goes on. As far as biggest storylines for the team, there's another off-the-court one that's going to impact the court play tremendously as the Pistons moved Marcus Morris to the Boston Celtics in a trade, acquiring shooting guard Avery Bradley, and a second-round pick in the deal. Bradley has fans kind of reminded of those tenacious backcourts the Pistons passed, which led to championships at the Palace of Auburn Hills. The move also meant that Contavious caldwell Popera is all done as the, organi- the organization renounced his, his rights and allowed him to sign a nice one-year deal with the L.A. Lakers where he can kind of hopefully boost his stock a little bit and get that long-term deal as an unrestricted free agent next year. The Pistons, meanwhile, are a team with all sorts of questions, so let's get right to them. The best-case scenario with the team has to pretty much involve Andre Drummond and Reggie Jackson with some bounce back years and coming together offensively to form that nice pick and roll that they had two years ago. It was their best offensive weapon during that season. But with last year, Reggie was kind of out or hobbled when he was playing with that knee injury. It bogged down the offense and made it a lot harder for action to be happening and three-point shooters to get open looks. With the pick and roll coming back and being effective, those three-point numbers are going to obviously go up, especially since the additions like draft pick Luke Kennard in the first round and free agent signings Anthony Tolliver and Langston Galloway. Those guys are much better three-point shooters than the ones uh, whose minutes they're going to be replacing. That being said, Tobias Harris did a really good job and performed admirably as the go-to scorer pretty much last year without that Andre Drummond-Reggie Jackson effective pick-and-roll. But if Tobias Harris at this point in his career or any point in his career, if him creating shots is going to be your best offensive weapon, you're going to be a pretty limited offensive team in the NBA as we saw last year. Moving on to a worst-case scenario, that has to do with Coach Stan Van Gundy. If he can't stay on the same page of his players, it's going to be a long season. He's coming into Season 4 with the Pistons. And if things don't get better now for him, they may not ever get better with this core and Stan. And of course, it's preseason. Everyone's saying all the right things. Um, Stan's always been brutally honest with his players. And at that times, at times that hasn't really sat well with Drummond as a young guy and also with Reggie Jackson being kind of as emotional as we can – 
see that he is as a player and as a person. And, of course, we know about the problems that Stan had with Stanley Johnson last year. Again, with Stanley and Stan, everyone's saying all the right things in the preseason, but we'll see how that uh, goes when some rough patches come throughout this year. As far as a player who might be thought of differently at the end of this season, it's going to be Avery Bradley. It's going to be interesting to see how he does coming from being the second fiddle with the Celtics and Isaiah Thomas in that backcourt. Now he's in a situation where he's really the most accomplished NBA scorer on this roster. And he's got his free agency upcoming. Is that going to be a good thing or a bad thing for his career? We'll, We'll see on that. Is he going to embrace that role, lead the team in scoring, and answer the bell in big fourth quarter moments and decide that Detroit's some more he wants to stay in the long term? Or is he going to see that he's maybe just an defensive stopper and a complimentary scorer with some some better guys around him, and maybe he'll find some some of those superstars in the open market to uh, to play alongside next season? As far as a guy whose career trajectory might change a lot this season, either good or bad, I'm going to go with Stanley Johnson on that. Uh, he took a big step backward in his second year. But with Morris being gone from that forward spot, there's going to be more minutes for him available at that forward spot that's more comfortable for him. I think that's the biggest wild card of the season is Stanley. And what we think of Stanley next June will really be the whole story of how this Pistons season went. If he's a guy that we could see as possibly an all-star down the road, then maybe this Pistons season went really well. And, of course, the opposite, meaning that uh, it didn't go so well once again. As far as rookies making impacts, it's basically just Luke Kennard. He was the first-round pick for them. Is he going to get the Stanley Johnson workload from two years ago or the Henry Ellenson lack of workload uh, from one year ago? He got the Duke pedigree and uh, Pistons filling the need for the shooter role with him. He should get on the floor some. He'll probably be with the big club for the whole season. But I only see him getting about five, ten minutes a game possibly, especially because he's in a battle with Langston Galloway for those backup minutes of shooting guard. And if you see Galloway shooting the three like he did at the end of last season with Sacramento after the Boogie Cousins trade, I think Kennard's going to have a high, hard time finding regular minutes on the floor. As far as how the season's going to end, Las Vegas has the Pistons over under at 38 and a half wins. Now keep in mind, this is a team that went 37 and 45 last year and 44 and 38 the year before with largely the same core. And if you remember last year as a fan, you remember the malaise. You had the players only meeting with Reggie Jackson when he came back. You had the unrest with Stan Van Gundy at times. And then the injury to Jackson as well. Uh, he's the catalyst of this team, and he had a rough go of it even when he was healthy. So I like this. I like the, the win total for this team to be a little bit closer than it was two years ago than last year. So I'm going to go with 43 and 39 as the record. And solidly in the playoffs in the weak Eastern Conference, maybe at the 6 or the 7 seed. But I don't know. Maybe all the lockdown hosts are, are calling overs for their, their teams that they cover. But I actually think this is one of the safest bets on the board. As for the playoffs, I think the Pistons get in. And they're going to be another tough out like they were two years ago for Cleveland if they end up with Cleveland or Boston or Milwaukee or one of those contenders in the first round. I, I don't think they ultimately pull that upset. But it's going to be kind of a tough out for those teams with the, the tough defense that the Pistons play. It's an optimistic look that I have, but I think it's ultimately realistic as well. Uh, so you got season one of the Little Caesars Arena happening, and I think that the, for the fans, a return to the playoffs and some competitive basketball will probably be enough for them. So that'll do it for your Detroit Pistons season preview. Again, this is Matt Shook. You can catch me on Twitter at Matt underscore Shook, S-C-H-O-C-H, and another underscore after that, or on my Facebook page. So thanks for listening, everyone. 
Matt, we're glad to have you aboard as the host of Locked On Pistons, and Piston fans will be excited to be with you for the season. Great insight from Matt. Hope you enjoy that one. And finally, Josh Lloyd's take on what to do fantasy-wise with these Pistons. Hi guys, it's Josh Lloyd from Locked On Fantasy Basketball back talking about the fantasy value on the Detroit Pistons. Andre Drummond is a punt free throw only guy for head-to-head leagues, unownable in rotisserie leagues, and you are going to lose the free throw category in head-to-head if you own him. Be aware of that. But an elite rebounder, elite steals guy for a center. Let's hope that his um, septum surgery enables him to stay on the court for longer, and I think he has somewhat of a bounce-back season. Toby Harris and Avery Bradley, really strong mid to late round pick players, while Reggie Jackson remains a real discount, I think, if you draft him late. We know the knee injuries bothered him last season, but if he's healthy, he has got top 80 up, so I just don't expect anything near the top 50. And if I'm taking a punt on someone late with his team, it's going to be Stanley Johnson, who could be the starter at small forward. Maybe they go with John Lure in that lineup instead. But Johnson's got the ability to get some steals, Hit some threes, but his shooting needs to come up. But that is the perfect definition of a player you want with that last pick. He's interesting there. Is Smith and John Lua more waiver-wire type of players, in my opinion? Well, that wraps up Eastern Conference number one. Atlanta, Boston, Brooklyn, Charlotte, Chicago, Cleveland, and Detroit. Later this week, we'll launch our Western Conference number one, hitting Dallas and Denver and the Lakers, the Rockets, the Clippers, the Grizzlies, and the Timberwolves. And then Eastern Conference part two, Western Conference part two next week. Thanks very much for subscribing to Locked on NBA. Please subscribe to your local Locked on podcast for your favorite NBA team as well as your favorite NFL team. And keep an eye out for websites launching for each and every one of these in coordination with FanRag Sports. So this has been Locked on NBA Eastern Conference Preview Number 1, brought to you by SeatGeek. The promo code is locked. Thanks very much. We'll talk to you later this week with our Western Conference Part 1 Preview.